welcome to episode 420 of Inside Education with me, Sean Delaney. I'm a teacher and teacher educator, and my book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, is available from online bookstores, libraries, and an audio version is available on Audible and other audiobook platforms. You can follow me on Twitter, where I use the handle at InsideEd. My email address is InsideEducationPodcast at yahoo.com. This is a bonus episode of Inside Education to close the academic year 2020-2021, and I think you'll find it timely and interesting. I welcome back one of the first guests on the programme this year to celebrate the publication of his book, A Round of Golf with My Father. You might be thinking that this programme is going to be off the topic of education, but the book's subtitle reveals the connection between this book and education. The New Psychology of Exploring Your Past to Make Peace with Your Present. My guest is Stanford University Professor of Education, William Damon. Professor Damon directs the Stanford Centre on Adolescence and is one of the world's leading researchers on the development of purpose. Our previous programme focused on Professor Damon's research on purpose. Although we touch on it in this episode, the focus is on Professor Damon's latest book and the idea of a life review. You'll really like this episode of Inside Education if you like a good story or if you have stories in your own life you'd like to tell. It will interest anyone who has given thought to writing a memoir either for a public audience or for one's immediate family and friends. It's an episode where Professor Damon uses a technique from psychiatry and applies it to a mainstream review of one's life. When I met up with Professor Damon on this occasion over Zoom, I first asked him to tell me how he defines a life story. A life story is any account that we have, a narrative, a a description of something that we have done that we believe is significant enough to relate to ourselves or others. So a life story is a huge umbrella, very generic term that could, could include everything from your shopping trip uh, to the department store to get a good bargain and how you managed to sort through uh, the choices you had. That would be a very very minimal life story uh, to an autobiography, which would uh, a a four uh, chapter or two volume autobiography. So life story is a very generic term. I mean, for example, there have been poems written to be life stories, little clips. Robert Lowell, an American poet, uh, wrote a, um, uh, a very famous book of poems uh, with that title. Uh, and each was just a little glimpse of something that his parents did or he did or some experience he had. It doesn't have to be an entire lifelong, multi-decade account of anything. But the concept that I use in my new book is life review. And a life review is something much more major than a life story. Okay. And I want to come back to the life review in a minute, but if we can stick with the life story for another minute, is it the case then that somebody could have one life story or they could have multiple life stories? Oh, everybody has life stories. We tell life stories to ourselves all the time and to other people. We tell life stories as a way of expressing who we are and identifying ourselves, but that isn't always our conscious reason for doing it. 
we may be telling them to amuse somebody as a joke or something that, to entertain, or we may be telling a life story to manipulate somebody. A life story, is, as I said, is a generic term for something that we say about ourselves that happened that we were somehow an active agent in. And it can be anything from a very minor event to a uh, long encounter, but um, uh, it can have multiple purposes. And how do you go about identifying your life stories? It depends on your intention. As I said, we tell life stories for a lot of reasons. Uh, We tell them sometimes to impress other people. So if you're trying to impress somebody, let's suppose, let's suppose you're a teenager out on a first date with a young lady who you really would like to uh, uh, make a good impression on. Well, probably the life stories that you're going to tell her will be uh, of little victories you've had or uh, things you've done that have been that you're proud of. Uh, you probably wouldn't tell her something that uh, made you ashamed or looked like somebody that she wouldn't want to ever see again. Uh, So it depends on your intention. On the other hand, let's suppose you were going in to a therapist uh, to get a problem solved. Well, you wouldn't be talking about the high points of your life at that point. Uh, You'd be talking about your problems and things maybe that you did that were wrong or that you were embarrassed about or that you had regrets about. So we, as I said, we tell life stories all the time for a lot of different reasons. And the types of life stories we tell are driven by the kinds of reasons we have for them. Uh, I mean, other, as I said, sometimes people tell life stories to deceive other people. Uh, you may, um, or to get some advantage, you may go into a uh, an auto, automobile store and you want to uh, get a very good bargain on a car. And so you may tell a story about how uh, you've had a terrible illness and you don't have any money left. And uh, could this guy give you a break on the, on the car? None of it may be true, but it could well be that uh, that would be the reason you'd be telling that story. Okay, so, so a life story might not even be true. Uh, that's right, that's right. Okay. Um, that's right. So it's kind of like the myths we make up about ourselves then maybe, is it? It could be, but as I said, a lot of times they are true. Yeah, yeah. But but it, but it is it is something. There is a, a myth-like quality to life stories, in that we're weaving a narrative that's driven much more by the reason we're telling the narrative than by what actually happened. And that's an important point because it's very important to know that whatever life stories we tell, we are never going to tell a story that's 100% the way it happened. Because our memories, even if we try our best, our memories just aren't like that. Uh, They're not veridical in that way. Uh, They're always constructed in some way or another. Yeah, in in the book, you quote Piaget as saying that our memories are unreliable. and, and, And I'm sure that has implications then for creating our life stories. Absolutely. Uh, we can try to get as many facts as we can, uh, like doing research and any, any other kind of research. We can go back and we can speak to other people who were with us at the time something happened or look for records. And we can do all that. And that can bolster our memory and it can increase the accuracy of it. But it's hopeless to ever think that 
memory is like a camera that takes a snapshot and every detail will be fixed in place. It, that just isn't the way it works. We, we co-construct, uh, we have traces of recollections and then we fill them in with our, uh, with our best faith effort to try to reconstruct the events. So in your new book, which is called A Round of Golf with My Father, The New Psychology of Exploring Your Past to Make Peace with Your Present, you, do, you use life stories, but it's really centered around a life review. So what is a life review then? A life review is an intentional way of creating a life story or a life narrative. And it's a way of creating a whole life story rather than just the many uh, incidents that we have as our little mini life stories. As I said, the day at the office that you spent or the picnic with the family or the time you went shopping at the department store, all of those mini life stories. That A life review goes way beyond that. A life review really tries to reconstruct how your present is connected with your past. So it's an examination of your past and even beyond that, of the people who shaped your past. So you go into your ancestors, your parents, certainly, and other people that might have been important to you and maybe even construct their lives a bit so you understand why they were the way they were when they had their influence on you. And so it goes back into the past, it brings you up to the present, and then it also ultimately helps you make choices about the future. Uh, What kinds of future would be based on the best parts of you, the best kinds of noble purposes that you've discovered in life and devoted yourself to and that you've felt some pride in, some accomplishment in, and taking some signal, some message from that, uh, and things you've believed in that you've found these are true, these are true uh, parts of me, the best of me. And so the life review leads to choices about the future based on your strengths and what you've learned and also what you've learned from regrets and things that you don't want to do again. I think that's really interesting about the life review that it has an orientation that looks backwards, but it's also looking forwards. Exactly. So, so, so because initially when you started answering that question, I thought it was something that you do in your later years in life. But if it's got both a past and a forward orientation, you can actually do it at any stage of your life. Is that right? I I think it would be a a great thing for young people to do. Uh, Of course, I did it myself when I was already fully grown and mature and uh, late in life. But I wish I had done it when I was 20 or 30, because it, it, first of all, it does help you make good choices. even if you haven't had a long past, you've had some past, and it helps inform you about the choices you make. And it gets you into a habit of being thoughtful about uh, what's important to you as you go on in life. So uh, it, uh, it, I think, ideally, if I had my life to do over again, I would do a life review every 10 years or so. And I also want to say, I, I, when I emphasize the idea that a life review is intentional, it's, a, it's an intentional, systematic way of doing things that people do actually spontaneously to some extent. And so the great psychologist Eric Erickson wrote about how adolescents make 
choices about their identity. They form their identity. They forge their identity by essentially doing what looks like a life review. In other words, they go over all of their childhood identifications, uh, all of their historical successes and failures in the past, but they do it in a spontaneous and somewhat haphazard way, of course. And I think the, the possible advantage of a life review is that you can do it intentionally and systematically, and therefore with, uh, with even greater likelihood of uh, success and, and good effect. And if we take this formal life review that you have uh, now written up in your book, you made it your own, but you didn't actually develop the idea. The idea uh, you were building on someone else's idea. Can you bring us through the, the stages from, you know, who developed it and how did you adapt it in your writing? Sure. The life review was actually developed by the legendary psychiatrist, Robert Butler, and I learned it. Uh, not directly from him, but I learned it from his writings. Uh, He was a um, legendary figure in American psychiatry. He was the first director of our National Institute on Aging. He wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book about living living with hope and purpose late in life. Uh, He was actually the person that coined the term ageism, uh, about how people sometimes don't appreciate in our culture, uh, elderly people. And so he was a great person. Early in his career, before he became a public figure, in his research life, he developed the method of the life review. He later did not have time to follow up on it because he became such an important national figure, but he always said he wished he had had that time and he really believed in the method. So I sort of see myself as, as uh, salvaging uh, this great insight that uh, this great man had, uh, but did not himself have time to follow up on it. He used it in his work to counsel elderly people that were plagued with depression because he believed that part of the reason for their depression is that when they thought back in their lives, they thought about them in the wrong way. Uh, They thought about all the downsides. They had unresolved regrets that they never got past. They thought they had made bad choices that they could never get over. And he believed that every person has some purposeful moments in life, has some things in their life that they've learned to believe in. And if you could get them to focus on that in a more intentional way, uh, you could lift their spirits. Now, I don't, I'm not a clinician. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't pretend to know anything about depression. But for my reasons, for my use, I went to this method because I had discovered something about my past involving my father that I had never really gotten over and that I, in fact, had avoided for most of my life by deflecting every bit of news I ever heard about it. And so this was an opportunity for me to go back and to make some sense out of a lot of unresolved and denied things that, uh, that uh, when I was being honest with myself, I had to admit were still holding me back. And I want to go into your own story in just a moment. But before we do that, can you say a little bit about how how somebody who kind of says, oh, that, that sounds like something I'd be interested in doing. How do you go about doing a life review? 
There are a lot of ways, and uh, I don't know one cookbook strategy. Uh, in fact, I, if, if I had to guess, I would say probably everybody has to do it in his or her own way. Uh, so I can give you kind of the general objectives, but it depends on your life and what kinds of information is available and what kinds of records there might be and also what your recollections are like. But the steps basically are, first of all, find out anything you can from people who were there during the critical turning points of your life. And it could be te a teacher, it could be um, um, certainly a, your parents if they were alive, brothers and sisters, uncles and aunts, old friends. Have conversations with those people about what they remember, about how, what you were like and how you made the choices that you made. And, and that might surprise you. Uh, I can tell you it surprised me. And maybe to, the, maybe to the upside, to be honest, I remember thinking that I'd acted like a jerk sometimes with some of my friends, uh, more than they believed that I had. And that kind of delighted me, but it also taught me something about how I thought about some of my past. So having those conversations, uh, and they, they may be uh, happy or they may be difficult. Somebody may actually tell you, no, you, you, you did act like a jerk. You know, who knows? But all of these things are useful information for you to learn. So that's point number one, having conversations with people to help uh, you remember your past. Then if there are records, uh, I was able to find my school records all the way back to my high school. And that was amazing because I found what my counselors had to say about me. Uh, and uh, even letters that uh, my mother wrote about me uh, to the principal of the school, all of that brings back to life things that you either knew at the time and forgot, or maybe you never knew. So searching for records, historical records. And as I said before, uh, you're, Knowing about your parents is um, part of this. So doing ancestry searches, uh, there may be even news clips about your parents or wedding notices or, uh, or who knows what, but, uh, but doing a records search. Uh, so a people search, a record search, and then finally a memory search, trying to go back and um, do that hard reconstruction work and trying to be honest with yourself about what you really remember, what you don't remember, keeping a bit of a journal. Uh, and sometimes I found when you try to recollect the same thing on a couple of different occasions, for example, you write about an occasion uh, that happened when you were 20 years old, one week, and then the week later you go back to it, you, you, you sometimes remember new things. Uh, your memory improves over time. Uh, so doing that in a systematic way uh, and then putting it all together and, and trying to, and this is the part I write about in the book, um, trying to focus ultimately on what gave you satisfaction and fulfillment, what your purposes were, uh, where you might have failed and how to think about that. Uh, because failure is not always a negative thing. It could be a learning experience. And dealing with regrets. Something uh, um, did not work out the way I wanted it to. What do I make of that now? Uh, how does that uh, help me understand, first of all, where I am now, and maybe even 
uh, understand how that regretted incident might have had some beneficial outcomes that would not have happened if that if that regretful incident had never occurred. At the center of this book is your own story, which is absolutely fascinating in itself. Can you tell us a bit about that story without ruining the, the, without ruining the whole thing for somebody who might like to read the book? Yeah, well, it is, it is definitely a, a bit of a mystery. Um, but um, I was in my office in California one afternoon, and this was about 10 years ago. And uh, I got a phone call from my daughter, who is a world traveling economist. And she was off in Cape Town, South Africa, unable to sleep because she was having jet lag. And so she started Googling around for information about her grandfather, namely my father. Now, she had never met her grandfather, and I had never met my father. My father disappeared at my birth, and my mother had always told me that he was, quote, missing in World War II. He was serving in Germany in the army, and he did not come back. Later, when I was about 20 years old, my mother did mumble something to me uh, about how my father, yeah, he was still alive, but uh, he's not around. And she told me a couple of things that were irrelevant at that point. And I had no interest at that point. I Then I realized, well, gee, he must have abandoned us. And I figured he was a scoundrel. And I didn't want to have anything to do with him. I had no in interest whatsoever in following up. And in fact, I even tried to avoid it because I didn't want to identify with somebody that I figured was just a irresponsible cad. So for most of my life, I, for my first part of my life, I thought he was dead, killed in action in World War II. And for most of my adulthood, I just thought he was nobody worth uh, even knowing anything about. My daughter found out that my father was dead, but that he had had quite a life after he didn't return. In fact, it was a very notable life with a lot of uh, almost um, dramatic uh, parts to it. He had been a kind of heroic witness at a war crimes trial, not Nuremberg, but another one in held in England. In Litchfield. In, in Litchfield, England, right. Yeah. Uh, and he was a very courageous witness against prisoner abuse. and. After he did not return, he went on to the U.S. Foreign Service, where he served in Germany, uh, helping uh, run small towns after the war for the American side and denazify them, uh, help sort through the mayors and so on to put in place people who would be uh, um, believe in democracy. And then he was later stationed to Thailand where he became very close to the king and queen. And again, was a notable diplomat. Even more importantly, he had children. He had a second marriage. He did divorce my mother. My mother never told me about that, but he did divorce her. He remarried and had daughters and uh, daughters who I could meet. I grew up as an only child, I had no sisters or brothers or even cousins. And now all of a sudden, because of my daughter, I was discovering a whole side of my family I knew nothing about, plus the history of my father. So that set me off on a five-year discovery quest uh, to find out all about him. And it ended up, not only did I find out 
amazing things about him, but I got to meet my half sisters and we've become close and my cousins and my father's younger sister, his, my aunt. And so it's been quite a journey late in life towards self-discovery, family discovery, and family uh, reconstituting a family that uh, otherwise I not, would not have had. And what did you learn about your father's character? You've certainly hinted at it in that um, description, but, but, but about you know, your character, what, what did you learn about it that you, that you obviously didn't know beforehand because you hadn't given it any thought? Right. And this is an interesting thing about education these days, Sean, in comparison to previous years. When I went back to my father's school records, I found out a lot about his character because the kinds of records that were kept in those days, and this was in the 1930s, were full of character descriptions, uh, moral descriptions about everything about his level of honesty, his a sense of compassion and his level of responsibility. And it turned out that maybe I could have predicted this. It turned out that he had very good character marks on issues of integrity and honesty, but very poor marks on issues of responsibility and diligence and perseverance. And he was, he was described as uh, somebody that uh, was a slacker, uh, somebody that just avoided responsibility at all at all uh, costs. Did not do his homework. Uh, later, did not even graduate from that school. He was kicked out of the school, and so on. So, interestingly, he, and of course, the act of abandoning my mother and me. And he was very young at the time. He was a young soldier. He was only twenty-two years old. He was acting out the character traits that were described in full detail in his school records. But, and this is another point about character development and moral development, but then when he was called on in the area of his military service to do something important for other people, uh, which had to do with this testimony and later his devotion to the military and the national objectives, he came through on that. He did then develop some kind of moral maturity in that area. And so what, what I describe, it's really a study in character education, really. Uh, he was very immature in some ways uh, in his character development in school, and that continued right up through his first marriage. And his... Uh, uh, his sense of or lack of sense of responsibility towards his first child, namely me. But later he, uh, I think because of the demands of the military service and the kinds of things he saw firsthand, he saw, you know, when you're in the army during wartime, you see a lot of suffering. You see a lot of uh, people really up against it. Uh, It's a life or death kind of struggle. He grew up very fast. And he did develop at that point a, a lot of um, a lot of grit and a lot of uh, uh, sense of uh, mature, moral maturity. And how did your life review experience affect your own character and what that reveals about character education in general? I had been very unforgiving to my father, um, unforgiving in a way of willful ignorance. 
I just assumed the worst. After my mother, when I was about 20 years old, revealed to me that he had not died and had abandoned us, to the extent that I ever thought about him at all, it was just, he is a no-account scoundrel. And, and I never gave him a chance in my mind. And of course, he, he lived for, for quite a while. He, he, died, he had died about 20 years before my daughter revealed to me uh, who he was. But there were a lot of years in there that I could have met him. I could have met that side of my family. But I was not willing to do that. I wasn't willing to take the risk of upsetting my own emotional balance. I wasn't uh, willing to forgive him at all for what he did to me or my mother. And what I learned from this whole experience and from the life review, first of all, I, I identified a trait in myself that goes all the way back to school, which is I am stubborn. And that's something that even my, that was in my school records uh, at age 14. So that goes way back. And so number one, I'm saying to myself, gee, stubbornness is not a good characteristic. Uh, so I'm reminding myself of that all the time. But that I think was a, a more minor revelation. The more major revelation really was that uh, in, if you're going to grow and continue to develop in life and uh, and thrive during your present and future, you need to be open to the truth. You need to you need to really find out exactly what has happened in your life and in the lives of others, and where you could make some choices that could be based on what actually happened, rather than your sense, your sense of self-denial or uh, repression or refusal to engage in things that are uncomfortable. So I learned, first of all, to have the conversations with other people. If I had had the conversations with my mother to ask her frankly about what happened, uh, I never did that because I wanted to avoid the awkwardness of that. And she died several years ago, long before I had a chance to do it. So to do that, to examine my own life, to and and to really um, be willing to move move on past the uh, past the regretful incidents, and ultimately, in a moral sense, to be able to forgive uh, somebody that did something uh, that wasn't so good to me, but for for reasons that I now can understand and even to some extent respect, he, he did something wrong, but not something unforgivable. You write, and I'm not sure if this is related or not, but you do write in the book that character is a movie, not a snapshot. What do you mean by that? Well, that's part of the same point, that uh, if I took a snapshot of my character when I was uh, in uh, high school or in college, I would have come away with uh, descriptors such as stubborn, perhaps even judgmental, uh, I mean, there were a lot of things like that, that that were characteristics of me at that time and maybe persisted throughout life. But I believe that there's growth. And uh, at least in relation to this story and relation to my father's life and my uh, new relatives, uh, I know that I am not uh, judgmental at this point. I know that I'm compassionate and forgiving. And uh I'm very open-minded uh, by uh, force of will about anything that people would uh, would talk to me about. So I, I think I have grown. I think it's fair to say that 
um, that in my case, as well as in everybody's case, it's a moving, hopefully growing uh, dimension of life, not something that's ever frozen in time, which, by the way, goes against some psychological theories that I think are just wrong. Uh, I mean, even Freud, I think, believed that certain aspects of character were frozen by childhood, by mid-childhood. And I think that was very wrong. But even some of the more uh, contemporary movements in psychology, like the big five theory of personality, really believe that by age 30, you're pretty much who you're going to be in life. And I, th I just think they have it wrong. I think as long as the brain is alive, there can be learning, there is learning, lifelong learning. And if we're willing to keep ourselves open to it, uh, we have a lot of agency in our lives over who we can be. But in order for that to happen, we have to be open-minded. One thing that I find not puzzling, but it's something I, 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 I I, I've been trying to kind of um, get my head around is that you take what is a very personal story, but you make it interesting to a readership way beyond your own immediate circle of family and friends. And that's a, that's a very difficult thing to do with a personal story. How do you actually, what kind of discipline did you have to use or how did you go about taking this personal story and then making it, of in, making it interesting for a much wider audience? That is exactly the question that I wrestled with uh, as I wrote the book. And that was the challenge I put to myself because I wasn't just trying to do a diary or write something for my children. And I also learned a lot. Uh, as you know, I'm a psychologist who has spent a lot of my career focusing on purpose and moral commitment and lifelong human development. And uh, I learned so many things in this quest that were revealing, I thought, and would be helpful to people. So what I determined to do as I wrote the book was to interweave my story with the theory that I was presenting about a life review, about purpose in life, about how we can continually find and develop and search for new purposes and refine and rebuild our old purposes and dealing with regrets. Uh, the whole idea of redemption, which I think is relevant to everybody, redeeming our past failures or the past mistakes we've made. And so what I, did in, in writing the book, and th this is why it took me really a couple of years to do uh, with a lot of rewrites, was I tried to use my own case as a case study, just as if I were a psychologist who had done a case study of, of John Smith, let's say, or of anybody. And of course, that's a very um, standard treatment in in psych psychological writing, case studies, and uh, there's a whole format for doing that. So if I, had, if I were a third person and I had done a case study of Bill Damon, it would have been very simple to write this up as a case study. It was a little more complicated because this was my case and I had to unravel all of my subjectivity and deal with my emotions and all of that. But nevertheless, that's what I tried to do. And so I, re I wrote about this case of a person who late in life discovered elements of his past that he never knew about, that he had denied, that he had avoided finding out about that were very important for how I came to my present, uh, how I would develop my ideas about my future. And I wrote about the particulars of that 
in a way that we're meant to demonstrate the general principles that would apply to everybody. And I think the, the thing that was interesting is the particulars in my case were pretty dramatic. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not everybody that um, has a missing father who goes on to be a diplomatic uh, uh, personality and, and, and that kind of thing. But the drama aside, I think the, the story is absolutely familiar and somewhat typical. And lots of people have, in fact, almost everybody has some mysteries in their past, uh, either self-imposed or imposed by other people keeping secrets, uh, that, it, you, that there's tremendous advantage to unraveling those and to trying to make sense out of them. And that's what I tried to do. And I, I, so I tried to show how I did that in the case, in the single case of Bill Damon, but as a way of demonstrating the theory of life review, of purpose development throughout life, and of dealing with regrets and uh, finding redemption, gratitude, and compassion in, late in life. So you would envisage then that most people who would undertake a life review would not necessarily be publishing it for others, that you're doing it kind of for illustrative purposes, really, in your case, as you say, for, as a case study. Well, I think everybody can publish it to some extent in the, sense that, in the sense that their families will be amazingly interested in it. So certainly anybody with children or younger people in their families, uh, and I've seen this happen, uh, it doesn't have to be a whole book length manuscript. Uh, you can do a version of a life review in 10 or 20 pages, and that 10 or 20 pages will have tremendous meaning for future generations in your own family. And if not even in your family, uh, younger colleagues or friends you might have. So I do think it's a good idea to write these things up. It doesn't have to be a published book by any means or anything book length, but to write it up in a way that uh, would be available to people in your circle of friends and family would be a valuable thing. And to the extent that you're comfortable in doing it, you're sharing a lot of your wisdom and your life experience with them. So I, I, I do think it's helpful. The other thing, of course, it helps is that it encourages people to do their own life reviews. So as people read my book, it's amazing how many people have gotten in touch with me saying, you know, I'm going to give this a shot myself. This looks like it re would really be informative and, uh, and interesting for me to do. And of course, everyone does it in their own way. And so I've had a number of uh, both friends and people I don't even know who let me know that they're going to try to do this themselves. And everyone that does one, if you share it with other people, you can discuss it. That encourages other people to do it. It's not a very high risk uh, undertaking. You're just going over your own life, uh, but in a more systematic way and learning things that you might not have realized about your life. I'll, I'll give you one other example of something I learned that really changed my view of how I got to where I am. I found out that unbeknownst to me, my father had gone to the same private high school that I went to. My mother never told me that. I had no idea how I ended up at the place. It was a much more elite place than I ever would have known about because we grew up in pretty disadvantaged circumstances because my mother was a single mother struggling. But somehow she managed to get me financial aid to go to this place, but I didn't know my father had gone there. And it wasn't until my life review uh, after age 60 that I discovered this. And then I went back and I could find his records there. But just knowing that, that knowing that's how I got there 
And that's how I got this, uh, this educational pathway in life. It wasn't because I discovered it or my mother or anything. It was because, uh, and, and then I gave, at that point, I gave a bit of credit to my father, uh, even though he didn't intentionally do it. Uh, it. It was something that, it was a, a kind of an unbeknownst gift of his to me that he had forged this pathway that then my mother learned about and that she was able to put me on. So it gave me a little more gratitude about, about my father. And of course, I always had that elementary gratitude that I wouldn't be here without him, whatever he did. So I was certainly glad of that. So whatever he did, uh, he's the reason I'm here. So I was able to end up with fairly positive feelings towards him, even though if he were still alive, I would definitely confront him with his decision to abandon me. And I wouldn't allow that to go uh, without some discussion. But I think I was able to respect him and feel some gratitude towards him because of this, which helped me that feeling respect, feeling respect and compassion and forgiveness to somebody is not just a gift to them. It also helps you. It also helps my own frame of mind a lot. When we spoke before, uh, one of the, the areas we discussed was that of purpose. Can you just remind us how you define what purpose is again? Sure. Purpose has two important components, and they're both important. It's something that is meaningful to you. In other words, not something somebody orders you to do, and you kind of do it begrudgingly because you were commanded to do it. It's something that you believe in, that it's meaningful. But in addition, it's something that goes beyond you to attempt to make some kind of contribution or accomplish something that is of consequence to the world, to the world beyond itself. And it's, it's those two components that, uh, that define purpose. Uh, meaning is something, uh, meaningful things are important and great, but of course we already have a, mean, a word for meaning. So meaning alone is not enough. Otherwise you wouldn't need the word purpose. Uh, and purpose goes beyond it because it really is a commitment to try to accomplish something and accomplish something that in some ways is of, con- uh, is of consequence to the world beyond the self. And how then does a life review help you identify a purpose in your life? Because it it helps you think about the experiences you've had that may be to some extent purposeful. And especially, let's say you're young, uh, you may never have had a full purpose in the sense of a commitment to really do something that you stick with. But you may have done something, you may have been captain of your football team or something, and you were the person responsible for making sure the football got, got got put back in the right place after the game. Uh, so you had that little bit of responsibility and you were the one responsible for making the team members get along with each other without fighting. So it wasn't a full multi-year purpose. It might've been only one season uh, and you only did it you know, a few hours a week, but nevertheless, it was something purposeful. And so as you do your life review, you remember incidents like this that were somewhat purposeful. And what is it about that, that for me, connected with me, with my talents, my interests, the things I believe in, what is it about that that gave me that little bit of a purposeful sense? And that's how you can begin to home in on what could be more long-term purposeful commitments as you move forward in life. You asked the question in your book, Uh, And I'm going to ask you to answer it now. The question you ask is, how can someone who is not looking for a purpose find one? Right. Uh, That was the question, of course, that I asked the Dalai Lama 
in the in the ritual that I was allowed to have with him. And it's a very difficult question. It's the one that stumped me, which is why I asked the the wise master. And his answer to me, which I'm translating in my own uh, my own American jargon, I guess, but it was a bit of a, a what we would call a stick and a carrot answer, which is that you need to communicate to people, to the person, a couple of things in very graphic terms. First of all, what, how empty uh, and um, barren a life is without purpose. Uh, in other words, moving from one hedonistic thing to another or from just trying to get by with your own day-to-day um, survival, you can survive that way, but it, it, it's not really very fulfilling. You end up being very self-centered, and it's a source of anxiety. You're always worried about yourself. Uh, it's a source of boredom. You don't really stick with any interest. Uh, even hedonism gets boring. You know, you can, you can have a great time, <laughs> great time. You know, go, going out and getting drunk with your friends or something. But you know, after a while, that gets old. You know, it's it's not, it's not really the same as dedicating yourself to a noble mission. It just really isn't. And so you, you try to can. You, you try to demonstrate that to somebody. That's the stick part. Watch out for this because it will not. It will make you quite miserable eventually. And then the carrot part is to try to illustrate to the person how joyful and fulfilling a life is when it really does discover something that that you truly believe in and can commit to. And I can just tell you, just this is a story I tell in my book. I had the privilege once of meeting Bishop. Desmond Tutu, who told me a story about how he was inspired by Mother Teresa early in his life because he was in Calcutta uh, as a young person observing her. And just in a quick couple of sentences, he saw her take care of an infant uh, over a period of hours. Uh, the child was sick to death, sick unto death, and was vomiting and just miserable. And Mother Teresa just stuck with this kid and played and, and eventually got the child to smile and to have some good moments. And then soon afterwards, the child died in Mother Teresa's arms. And the bishop, he wasn't a bishop at that time, he was a young man. He, he said to her, how in the world can you do this? This is just so hard. How can you have a life where you, it's so draining and difficult? How can you do this day after day? And she said, oh, you don't understand. I was in total joy. This is the joy of my life, seeing that child smile. That's how I felt that my life is worthwhile. And there was also a religious element. She said, that's how I felt close to Jesus. Uh, So that was her religious part. But it was exactly that moment that he realized that this is what a joyful life looks like and true joy, because she was very happy. And uh, in terms of the Dalai Lama's message, Showing stories like that, some of them will be religious, some will not be religious, some will be as beautiful and dramatic as Mother Teresa, others will just be somebody having a great career, who knows, sweeping the streets and being proud of making the streets clean and doing a great job. And I actually know people like that. Uh, So it doesn't have to be noble, heroic or anything, but it it, it just has to communicate what joy it is to really do something well that you believe in. Have you thought at all, and maybe this is not even a fair question, but have you thought about how the life review would have been different if it had been built more around your mother? It's not as if she's neglected, but it is kind of very much centered on your father. And I wonder, you know, you grew up with your mother and maybe it would have been more difficult to achieve the kind of detachment from her that you could achieve when centering the story on your father. But have you thought about would that life review have been different if it had been centered around her? 
Well, that's a nice idea. Uh, and I think as you, as you say that, and I'm thinking about the book, I'm thinking, I didn't make a point of this in the book, but just as you said that, it kind of clicked to me that it, it almost did come together that way, that, that there were elements of it that maybe I wasn't quite as aware of it. But I did realize that, for example, my mother did set a very good example for me about how to be an independent-minded uh, person in a career, not follow the crowd, not follow the trends, do it your own way. I did tell the story of my mother in the book, and I kind of did a life review for her. Uh, she was a woman who had to have a career at a, because my father left her, uh, so she had to earn her keep and support me at a time when women were not having careers. This was back in the 1950s, and there was a lot of sexism at that time. And she forged a career in fashion, first in advertising, which was a very male-oriented industry. But she was tough, and she earned a lot of respect. And then eventually over the years, she moved from advertising to fashion to forming her own little business called Colab, collaborating with a group of French-Canadian weavers uh, to make uh, sweaters and socks and that kind of thing. And in observing her, as I thought about her life, and I never had really thought about it this way until I wrote the book, it did occur to me that there were elements of her career that influenced me in positive ways. Because I, in my career, I never have gone, I've always done it in my own way. And people have said, oh my God, how do you do these qualitative case studies and in a field that everyone loves data? And, you know, and how did you end up a Stanford professor? Oh my God, you know, without doing a million experiments uh, with, you know, tons of st statistics. But I've always done things in my own way, and I think that was, it's worked out because it matches my own talents and my own interests, and I think that was my mother's influence. So I think you're right. If I had done this shot, I did not do it with that intention uh, in that clearer way, but as you speak, I I sort of did it in, a, in, in the more spontaneous way that a lot of people do these things, and I think you're making a point that... Uh, that I, I did learn from my mother's story uh, as part of my life review. You were taught by such legendary scholars. I, 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 this is in your training as a psychologist. You, you were taught by such le legendary scholars as Eric Erickson, Stanley Milgram, Jerome Bruner, and a previous guest on this podcast, Jerome Kagan. What memories do you have of them as teachers? Oh, uh, well, I guess I, you know, I think all of them, have now died, if I'm correct. So I could probably say anything without revealing, because Jerry Kagan died very recently. Oh, I uh, know that. Yes, he died sadly about a month ago. So I believe everybody. Everybody. Well, I'll just I'll just um, free associate very quickly. Eric Erickson, of course, his his writings were what influenced me most, but because they're elegant. As a actual professor, he was a little less organized. Uh, but it was wonderful to be in the presence of the great man. And uh, I do remember once I just happened to be walking uh, along uh, across the college campus, and he was there too. So I got to walk with him across the campus. So I actually got to talk with him. And he told me, uh, just going back over his own life a little bit, which I think he did a lot, he said, 
all the students these days are bohemians and they wouldn't believe it, but I used to be quite a bohemian myself, even though I don't look it. And I used to be a, a wandering artist for a little while and every young person should go through that period. So I thought that was very charming and very different than his aura, which at that point was a, a grand old, very distinguished looking and very severe looking uh, man who, who who did not look like somebody that could be a wandering artist, to believe it. Kind of ties in with his idea of the psychosocial moratorium. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So that was one memory I had of Erickson. With Jerry Kagan, I, I re relate this in my book. Uh, he was a wonderful teacher and probably the person that most got me interested in child psychology because he gave such elegant lectures. But he ended up on my thesis, my undergraduate thesis committee, and I remember getting into a big fight with him, uh, in, to my own embarrassment, years later, because uh, who am I to get into a fight with Jerry Kagan when I was a, a senior in college? But it was about how, again, I, I, I was interested even then in doing this kind of qualitative research I do, looking for meaning in what people say uh, and uh, trying to understand how people come up with their deep insights in life. And I had a thesis like that. And he wanted me to, uh, he was a, an experimentalist, uh, which I was not, but he wanted me to control for the number of words that people use in expressing their deep insights. And I said, that's outrageous. Of course, people are going to take longer to express their deep insights. That has nothing to do with how many words they knew. And so I, I refused to do it. And that was the stubborn. I realized again, that was Bill Damon being stubborn. That was part of my personality that I discovered in my life review. And I was so embarrassed about that when I look back on it. But uh, and uh, but I did I did drop Jerry a note saying, you know, I, I was honored to learn from you. And you don't remember this, but I acted a bit like a, uh, in an outrageous way as a student. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. So that's another little memory I had. I want to just ask you about uh, just uh, a few of your books before we finish up um, and just maybe kind of to orientate people towards them, you know, if, if they're interested in finding out more. One of them is Some Do Care. That was a book I wrote with my wife, Anne Colby. And uh, that was, a, I think, one of the most significant, uh, one thing I look, when I look back on with great pride, because there we really did begin this quest to do case studies of people who were, had high levels of moral commitment. And in that study, I think we, uh, we, we did three things, I think, that have been enduring in the field. First of all, we, we really pioneered what's now called the exemplar method of research. Taking exemplars, people who exemplify some excellent um, pursuit and really studying their lives, not only because it's amazing and they ought to be admired, but because actually they are versions of ourselves, even though they've gone further. And the way they've learned moral commitment and the way they've learned this sense of right and wrong and what to do is exactly how we learn it. And we may never get that far, but all the way down to how we educate five-year-olds and 10-year-olds, we can learn lessons from these exemplars. And when we first did this, people didn't really understand that or even believe it. But I think that now that message has gotten across. And now in lots of schools and, and research programs, uh, this exemplar approach has been adopted. Uh, and especially in schools, which I like to see, people are using the lives of, of very important people, not only to admire the people, but also 
to convey how it is that those people got to learn exactly what we hope our students to learn. So that was one thing that that research accomplished. And secondly, we learned a lot about moral commitment, including purpose. That's how I figured out about how important purpose is in life through that first set of uh, the, the concept purpose had not really been elaborated at that point. And it was, and it took me even about 10 years later to get that word for what it was. But I, I started understanding the phenomenon. And then about 10 years later, the word kind of came to me that, yeah, this is purpose. And, uh, and then I linked that. And, and so that, uh, that was a very important step in, our, in my research on the development of purpose in that book. And thirdly, I think the book has, has also come up with a number of insights about moral development that, that the field, even today, is still, uh, is still very much at the forefront of the field. Another of your books is, no, is called Noble Purpose. Yeah. So that's exactly when I figured out, uh, with some help from other people, uh, that purpose was the word I was looking for. And so I did a little short book where I just went back and read everything I could read in philosophy and theology that ever used the word purpose. And I condensed it into that book. And I wrote some essays in that book about what this all meant. And so that's a little book. It's almost like a little gift book, very short. Uh, but it's a distillation of my ideas about purpose before I'd actually done any empirical research on purpose. Uh, but after I had done this moral development research. And so it was my looking over the horizon saying, okay, now that I understand that purpose is the word I'm looking for, what do we know about purpose from these great works in philosophy and theology? And then the other two, which I kind of I'm putting together, maybe I shouldn't, but the, uh, the moral child and greater expectations. Well, that was right. That's when I was uh, writing about children's morality and also uh, about mistakes I felt that our culture was making because uh, the moral child is just simply a synthesis of work on everything that's known about uh, everything from empathy to justice to uh, to morality uh, up to about the age of 12 or so. Uh, and uh, that book is, it, it, it's kind of a popularized book of, of current research. Greater Expectations was more of a critique book that I wrote after The Moral Child. And in Greater Expectations, I took the position that if we really want to help young people develop character, we need to have a high standards for them. And not just, um, I mean, it's important to love children and to support them and to give them praise, but we need to do more than that. We need to encourage them to try hard, to have high expectations for themselves, and be honest with them if they are not, if if they're not um, being responsible or if they are underperforming. Uh, I'm not saying be a mean, cruel disciplinarian, but I'm saying give them the message that you can do better than that. Uh, and it's and that was the height of the movement at the time when I wrote the book of self-esteem, when people were saying, no, 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 you just praise a child no matter what they do. And uh, I remember my daughter from school, she was in first grade, she brought home a set of cards that she had written, I'm terrific on 20 times. And I said, well, that's great, Caroline. What, what, what were you doing that was terrific? She said, oh, nothing, I'm, I'm just terrific. And I thought, well, yeah, it, you are terrific. Yes, that is true. But, you know, when you're in school, you ought to also try to do terrific things. Try hard, work hard, learn a lot. 
and that was the message in Great Expectations. Um, really uh, lean into it, try hard, go for it, uh, give it everything you got because it's not going to happen by itself. And uh, you you need to you need to really give it your best try, give it your best shot in life. And that was going against the grain at the time. I got into a lot of fights about people in the self-esteem movement. To be honest, I think I won the argument. I think nowadays people understand that message, but uh, in the, that, that's why I wrote the book anyway. And finally, then, we come up to the present. Uh, given that you never met your dad, why did you call the book A Round of Golf with My Father? <laughs> well, I took a, maybe you could call it a therapeutic trip to his old golf course that I uh, found out about in my research. And one of my new cousins that I discovered actually found a set of golf clubs of his that had a scorecard in the bag of him playing at age 12 on the golf course in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. So I went with the scorecard in mind and got a tee time at the golf club, wonderful, beautiful golf club. And I played the 18 holes thinking about his scores and uh, imagining that he was there with me. Uh, and it was, uh, it was bonding uh, in a way. Uh, and I suppose even I'll use the word therapeutic. Uh, I, I, he, he was a great golfer. That was part of the story. One of the first things I discovered about him was that he was a great golfer. That unleashed a bunch of resentments that I had about why didn't the guy ever come by and teach me golf? I love golf and I never learned how to play the game right. And he never came by, not even once. And But learning that I had those resentments was actually very helpful for me because I'd been repressing them all these years. And so going and playing on his course with his card in my mind and seeing what a good golfer he was, because even at age 12, he outplayed me. Uh, but, you know, learning about that, it, it did help reconcile some of the old wounds that I'd felt. So that's why I called the book A Round of Golf with My Father. Well, I just have to congratulate you on it because it's a, it's a wonderful blend of story and science with the, you know, the approach to the life review and the intermingled with the story. And it's such an easy read and such an enjoyable read and uh, such a, a, a beneficial read. It really was wonderful. So I wish you very well with the book. Oh, thank you so much, Sean. Well, as always, you know, I, I love being interviewed by you because you always get right to the heart of the matter and ask these great questions that bring up the absolute best in your guests. So I, I really, and of course your, your uh, podcast is well known in my field. So I, and I always recommend it to people too. Uh, uh, so you, you probably will be, or have been hearing from people that say, Hey, Bill Damon uh, told us to get in touch with you because you've got this great podcast. And those kind words about the Inside Education podcast come from Professor William Bill Damon from Stanford University's Centre on Adolescence. And it's a pleasant note on which to end the current season. I was speaking to Professor Bill Damon to mark the publication of his new book, A Round of Golf with My Father, The New Psychology of Exploring Your Past to Make Peace with Your Present. The book is published by Templeton Press. This is the last episode of Inside Education for this school year, but I'll be back in the new year with lots of new episodes and hopefully I'll be back to having some face-to-face -face interviews. In the meantime, you can listen to or download any of the 420 episodes to date by going to shondelaney.com and clicking on Podcasts. You can email me with feedback, comments or suggestions to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at InsideEd. 
my own book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, which was published by Routledge, is now available as an audiobook on Audible and in other formats from libraries and online bookstores. I hope you have a wonderful, restful summer, and I look forward to doing the same. And I hope to begin working on a new collection of podcasts for the new school year. So, until the autumn, from me, Sean Delaney, it's goodbye, and thank you for listening. (laughs)